We will know who the faithful are next week if you get past the marathon. Chad, make sure you take notice, or I'll be here. Never mind, I'll be seeing it. Um, hey, I want to welcome you guys. If you are new to Soundhouse, uh, my name is Ryan Grable. I'm the lead pastor here, and um, we're just happy that you're here. Uh, I was just talking to someone outside. It is weird if you just come into a new place. We hope you feel welcome, and I always, I'll put our church kindness and hospitality up against any of them. Are we supposed to do that competing with other churches? I don't know, but I just think that our church is very kind, very friendly, and I'm very appreciative of that. So we hope you feel that as well. Um, We are in the book of Acts. We are in the middle of a series, and if you haven't been with us the whole time, you do not have to feel like you have to play catch-up. Every single journey that Paul is taking, and we're in his second missionary journey now, the Apostle Paul uh, every city he seems to go to, kind of, we can mine out these beautiful values and these wonderful things that, that um, are very relatable to us every single time we get into one of his experiences. Now, if you don't know about the book of Acts, the book of Acts, really along with the book of Luke, was written to really be a discipleship type of book. He's writing to an individual And he's writing to this individual that they may also take and disciple others. And so Acts is this wonderful journey over decades of the growth of the gospel and the growth of the church throughout all of the known world. He does, Luke does a wonderful job of documenting a lot of things. And a lot of things you start to see God is shaping the church in a very specific way. When I thought about this topic in general, this chapter 18, and if you do have your Bibles, you can open up to chapter 18. We will start with verse 1, and we'll only go through verse 18, but we're going to take our time and get into it a little bit. This is an important chapter. It's an important chapter because he is entering a city that's of utmost importance, not just for the, for, for the city in the, it is to Rome, But really, ultimately, it becomes one of the more prominent churches. Paul writes one of his longest letters, if not the longest letter, to this church. This church and then the next city he goes to become really the main part of the rest of the story and hubs for church culture from there. I was thinking about this church, and I started thinking about, man, when Paul is encountering here, it's kind of a a very interesting moment. I always, when you read the Bible, when I read something, I just wonder, why now, God, are you doing what you're doing? And then I have to just kind of sit with it for a while. I don't know how you are, but I sit with it for a while. Like, why now, God? Why do you interject at this moment right now? Because you don't do it here and you don't do it there, but you're doing it right here. What was going on in Paul's mind that God interjects? That Paul needs to hear from Jesus himself. And it's kind of a rare moment, but it's very timely. And so I was thinking about this, why Paul? And then I started thinking about maybe if I could put myself in his shoes and feeling what he was feeling. And I I titled this message Control because I feel like in this moment, what we're going to experience with this is Paul is feeling probably a little out of control. I don't think Paul's a control freak. Some people think he is. 
I think Paul is very strategic and he's very driven. He's very missional. He's empowered by the gospel. And he realizes that all those who don't hear the gospel do not have the opportunity to hear about salvation. So he's driven by that. But also, I can imagine when you become overwhelmed, you feel like you're out of control. I was thinking about this during the pandemic. The pandemic in my lifetime and probably yours is, is the only time where I felt like I had no power. I had no control. Did anybody feel this way? You felt like, and I remember when it was the first two weeks to stop the spread, I was, I was telling Anna this morning, I was thinking about it. It was like such an amazing, like almost forced vacation. Do you remember it? And you're like, it's so great to be around my kids. I love them. And after the two weeks, they're like, when do we, the spread's done, okay? All right. <laughs> I need to get them away from me. I, I need to have me time. I need my life back. I want my life back the way it was running. And I feel like during the pandemic was one of these things. I don't know if it was for you, but it taught me a lot. It, it, it taught me the things that I put my confidence and maybe trust in that I didn't need to. It taught me that when I'm out of control, I actually found myself in a way turning inward in a way instead of pressing in more towards God. It was a valuable lesson. I don't know if you learned anything like that during the pandemic about yourself and about who God is to you in these moments. But it really challenged me and it had to put my what I preached to work. I had to put my what I believed to work, it was a real challenge. And so I very much relate to Paul. I wrote this when I think about the pandemic, this mantra when I go through something difficult again. This is my, my takeaway for the pandemic of out of control. I just said, I am not in control. I have control of my response because of my hope in who is in control. That's all I have. And so I believe that Paul experiences something very similar of, of, of this, wow, I'm, this, this is really out of my range. I'm really overwhelmed. I titled this message Control, and really the whole mindset behind what you're going to hopefully experience is this divine intervention in trying times. I think when trying times happen, we wonder, where are you, God? When something is very difficult, a, 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 a a feat that we have to accomplish, a, a, a path we have to walk, or a tunnel that's dark and we don't quite see the light, that God has not left you. He will never leave you. He is right by your side. He is in the valley, and he will be with you to the mountaintop. But the divine intervention in trying times, there's three moments we're going to see here in this story that God reminds Paul that God is actually in control and Paul is not in control. One is you're going to see a divine appointments that happen. These are relationships that are orchestrated by God. And then you're going to see an encouragement by God's, by, by God's divine presence. Paul needs that when he's in a trying time. And the last thing we're going to see in this verse through 1 through 18 is a divine timing. I don't know about you, but uh, patience I'm very patient in a lot of ways. My staff will tell you this. I make decisions very, very slow. But I would like to say it's complete patience, but sometimes I just don't know what to do, right? You know what I mean? But patience is something that we, we feel like we, when we perceive that it's the right time, we should strike. But God is always asking us to be patient on his 
timing. Okay, this is going to get really good. And you're going to see, man, where God starts to show us something we can take today. But I would say this. If you are here and you are tired and you have been through it and you feel like when is the light at the end of the tunnel, you're worn down and maybe even you're afraid. We have to remember when we hear this and read this that you serve the same God Paul serves and that God loves Paul just like he loves you. We cannot divorce ourselves from the fact that Paul was special. That God loves Paul just like he loves you in your trying time. We serve the same God. So Acts chapter 18 Oh, I think I might have it wrong on there. Verse 1, it says this. After this, right, Paul had left Athens. He's on his way to a new city. He left Athens and he went to Corinth. Now, I have to park here for a while because when you read Scripture, it's so important to know a few things. One is you have to know the culture of which Paul is going into, especially because we have First and Second Corinthians. And it tells us a lot about what's going on in the culture. And so it's a really good roadmap. Homework for today, read 1 Corinthians. You'll get a really good idea of what's happening and what Paul is encountering and why God needs to intervene the way he does. Corinth is about 50 miles from Athens on foot. Let me, let me give you a little bit of an idea. Paul is going to enter down this Lycian road, and you can put this picture up. When he enters into Corinth, this road right here is where exactly how he would have entered in. He is walking in and he's seeing the prominence of this city. He's seeing the awe of the city. It doesn't look quite like it there. We'll see it in a second what it looks like. But he walks in and he sees all of this worship, worship of other gods. He sees all of this wild, crazy, debaucherous living, all happening right out in the streets. And up on that hill, the arrow, the arrow, arrow oh, sorry, Arco Corinth, Corinth is this huge 1,800-foot mountain. And on the very top, you can still see a few remains today, is the worship to the goddess Aphrodite and this god of love, this god of sensuality, Right? And so we see a lot of words that now live on today from that worship. And at this place was a place of absolute immoral living. So he walks into this. Now, Athens would have been very cool for Paul. Because, you know, he grew up in Tarsus, which was almost equivalent to Athens in intellectual, like, uh, levels of education and schooling. Paul, that's why Paul did so well in Athens. He grew up that way. So Athens might have been quite an interesting place for him. Corinth is a very, very, very different place. And if you look at it, he's walking and he walks into this, what's called the Agora. And this is where he's naturally going to go. This is the marketplace. This is where Paul can then go do his trade. See that little arch thing right there? They had tons of them all along. And Paul would have been parked up at one of those places there selling tents because that was his trade. Every young man had to learn a trade, and every young aspiring rabbi needed to learn a trade. And eventually, he would then get his young apprentices to have trades, and then they would support the rabbi. Paul decided not to go that route. 
This is what Corinth would have looked like through models. If you can look at this next uh, slide. Corinth would have been this overwhelming metropolis of 200,000 people. It, it was quite a, quite a spectacular place. Let me give you an idea of Corinth so you can, can see it too. Is that it was an ancient Corinth. It was a Greek city before Rome had taken it over. It had major influences in Greek. You know those little potteries that you see of, of the black figures that are painted on pottery that when you look at ancient Greece, that's all came from Corinth. That's their influence. You know those really cool helmets that you saw in maybe 300 with Leonidas, those cool helmets? That's all Corinthian armor, right? They were very influential in Greek. In, in Greece, you know, you know, like this beautiful bronze. You hear Corinthian bronze. It was gold, silver mixed with bronze. It was the best bronze in the entire empire. That was them, and they had something really big called this uh, Ismithian Games, right? And these games were were on the level of equivalent of the Olympic Games that we still carry on today. This was a massive deal. And why I'm telling you this is because you're going to see the influence of the surrounding area around Paul as he's writing Corinthians. He's going to contextualize a little bit like we talked about last week so that they relate to what Paul is saying when he's communicating the gospel. These games had boxing. Paul references boxing in Corinthians. These games had wrestling. These games had running. These were massive uh, 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 profiting events that brought the city a tremendous amount of wealth and fame as well. And Paul happens to be there during one of these games. Listen to what he writes in Corinthians 9, 20, or 24. He says, do you not know that in a race... All the runners run, but only one receives the prize. This would be very much part of their culture. So run that you may obtain it. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should disqualify myself. And that was a huge deal in those games, that if you didn't follow the regiment and the rules, you disqualified yourself from the games. This very much related to the people in Corinth when he wrote this letter to them. I very much can relate to this idea of Paul's writing that, that it's, you must keep yourself disciplined. And Paul's encouraging them, just like you see in the games, he's saying, you must stay disciplined. You can't loosen the gospel. You can't loosen your living. I've been trying to get up in the morning to work out. Is anybody a 5 a.m.er in here? Ugh. It is so rough. I have to first prepare for it to set my, my alarm for an entire month at 5 a.m. And then, and then turn it off just so I can know what it feels like to absolutely be miserable, right? And so I set it and I go through it. And then eventually I will start to wake up almost naturally. Do you know what I'm talking about? And then you start to work out, right? Paul is saying being disciplined. He needs to say this to this culture because it's highly undisciplined. And he's saying that, listen, it's going to be tough, but you've got to stay the course or you will not finish the race. And these people are highly distracted. And eventually, you wake up in the morning, you're like, I can't wait to work out. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm nowhere near there, but I know it's going to come. These games brought travelers from all over Corinth. This is the perfect place for Paul to be. He gets people from all over the Roman Empire. He can evangelize. It's perfect for him. But he's still... 
not quite overwhelmed yet from what we're going to talk about. The Corinthians had this great wealth because of this little pass. You could put this map up. They had this little pass, the Isthmus Pass. It was a four-mile-wide little connector between, like, the southern part here of Greece and in, in the Peloponnese is Sparta and all that, right? And then it connects all the way to Athens and all that. So this was a very important place, but what was more important is that anyone sailing anywhere from Asia Minor, anywhere from all along where Jerusalem was, or even from Egypt, coming through that little stretch was better than going around that whole horn. It was much more dangerous. So it became extraordinarily profitable, profitable, like the Long Beach like port. Very profitable. And what they did is they would go there, they would unload all their boats, and they had a rail track of a trolley, they would load all the stuff on, and they would send it to the other side, and a boat would be waiting, they would load it all back on that boat, another boat, and then they would continue to sail on in all throughout Rome. It made them extraordinarily wealthy. And it was the source of their power and wealth. And it brought so many different people through, right? It made them, I think, ultimately, what led to this you could call it like a sin city, a port city in a way. They were sailors. They had a lot of time on their hands, and they spent a lot of money there. And so it created a huge economy. They worshipped two main gods, and you're going to see it within the Corinthian writings. One of them, you probably didn't realize, Paul is referencing something that only the Corinthians would really know. And it's this uh, 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 Cleopas, and it's this really interesting God because he was the God of healing. And people would, what they would do is put this, put this picture up. They, they, would, they would bring body parts that needed healing, and they would bring it and have it blessed at the temple. And sometimes they would take it home or they would leave it at the shrine that they need their leg healed, they need their stomach healed, they need a body part, their hand, these most important features of the ancient time. And so it gives a little more context when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, when he's talking about the body parts and the hands and every part, body part needs each other. He's talking about unity in the church. And a hand can't go, go without having the rest of the body. And it can't just be just an eye. It's, it's multiple moving parts. Verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And then there was Aphrodite who was on top of that Arco Corinth. And up there is probably where the greatest problem in the city was. This is probably what brought Paul into a little bit of anxiety because it was famous throughout the world of when you went to hike up to see and worship at that altar, there were a thousand prostitutes to help you worship, male and female. And so there was a tremendous amount of immoral living going on there. And it was a place that people stopped off of like, hey, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Do you know what I'm talking about? You wouldn't relate to that. But, like, but this idea that whatever happens here happens here and it was readily available and it was promoted and it was celebrated within the city. So during the day, they would worship and how they worship was engaging with these prostitutes. And at night, then they would go in throughout the city and engage in more. The prostitutes would all throughout the whole city. So it was everywhere. 
And that's why I think when Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.33, Paul says, bad company, it ruins good morals. He said, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. You have to wake up. You cannot engage in this. You cannot be around that. Rome came in in 48 BC and absolutely destroyed this city because Corinth took a side against Rome. And it's an interesting thing because you'll see why Corinth is what it is by the time Paul gets there. It's no longer a Greek city by the time Paul gets there. It is a Roman city and a Roman colony, which is extremely important. It's a prominent city, ruled the area. And, and when, Rome came, or sorry, when Rome came in to destroy the city in 40, uh, 148, what they did is they decided that they would kill every single man that was a Corinthian. So they had a population of around the same. And so they slaughtered all the men. They took all the women and children and sold them into slavery. Then they would go in systematically, and then they pillaged the entire city. And then they went and they destroyed every single part of the city, and they razed it to the ground. It was desolate for a 100 years until Julius Caesar said, we should make this a colony, probably because of the Isthmus. And so they built a brand new city. Now, in ancient history, a brand new city was very rare. Okay. These, these were new buildings, new cities. It was hot, hot, hot place to be. Everyone was going there. The money was coming in. Julius Caesar didn't populate it with all the people of society. He put in all the freed people, and he put in all the, all the even slaves, and he put in the, all the middle class, and he said, hey, listen, this is your city. And so it was an interesting city because there was a, a, a real interesting mix of entrepreneurs, Paul, that's why it was easy for him to do his business. And there was a lot of kind of movement happening, a lot of mobility that never happened in the ancient world. You were born into wealth. Most likely you didn't create your wealth. But this city had all of it together. It was a real boom town. I would say this is a very good mix between San Francisco and Las Vegas, if you want to put it together. A lot of gold rush happening, a lot of new money and a lot of wild living that no one talked about when they got home. If you were Corinthianized in ancient literature, that meant that, oh, that guy, he's been Corinthianized. It's not a good thing. It means that he's morally corrupt. He's been Corinthianized. All the ancient plays, if you were a male in an ancient play it, that was a drunkard or greedy or, or just absolutely debaucherous, you were a Corinthian man. And if you were a harlot, you were a Corinthian woman. And all the, It was famous. So maybe you can see a little bit maybe why Paul writes 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but, he, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He's writing to a people who are known for immoral living, and they're trying to live that out in and in in be holy and pure before God in a culture that absolutely does not celebrate that. It's against their economy. Can we relate to this a little bit? Can you see why maybe Paul walked in and was like, I'm in trouble. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is over 
overwhelming. It had travelers from all over. This is why Paul is so strategic. Settlers from all over, entrepreneurs from all over. It was multicultural, multiracial, and it was a city that anything goes. That's what Paul walked into. I was thinking about this for myself, and maybe you can ask, have you ever walked into a situation and you had to take a minute because you were just a little bit uh, flabbergasted by what was happening in the situation? You ever been there? You walked into the wrong uh, hangout. You walked into the wrong spot, and you're like, oh, I didn't come for this. Right? Paul walks into this. Here's the three things, the three moments God's going to remind Paul. So I, think, I thought we need to get into that Corinthian a little bit so we can see maybe what Paul is feeling here. The first thing is this, is divine appointments. God shows Paul that no matter how maybe overwhelming the task is, he has people that he has been orchestrating to help. It's such a good moment. God continues to this day to orchestrate on our behalf. You may not see it, but God is orchestrating on your behalf. He is putting people in your path that might be lifelong advocates for the mission in the gospel and for your living. So in verse 2, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, which is just north of where Ephesus is. He recently came from Italy, he was in Rome actually, with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius, the emperor Claudius, had commanded that all the Jews to leave Rome. And this had happened twice before in Rome's history where they expelled all the Jews. Because of conflict, they just didn't want to deal with it, so they got them all out of the city. Out of the, out of the entire area. This conflict is interesting because historians write about it that it was because of, and they can't quite translate it right, but of a Christos. And so the, the conflict was really happening probably because of these believers that were at Pentecost who became believers, like Priscilla and Aquila, I think, went to Rome and are now preaching the gospel in the synagogues, and there's an eruption of an issue. So he just moves them all out, Claudius does. And so here they find themselves here to, to get work, right, to be there for the games, to make tents. It says he went to see them, and because there was this, they were the same trade, he stayed with them and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. We know Paul didn't convert them, because Luke would have said it. They were believers already. And so Paul is there with fellow believers that were believers probably before Paul was one. And it said, and they reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. This is what Paul would always do, right? Go to the synagogue. To the, to the Jew first, and he would begin to, where, where he was obviously probably most comfortable, and he is beginning to work with people who had scriptural heritage, a script, scriptural literate, and then he would then work elsewhere if it didn't go there. But he would reason with them, and he tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Can you put this picture up right here? They found this in Corinth, and it was, at this, it was right on that main pathway that you see. And this is an inscription saying that this was a synagogue. This was from the 4th century, both of them. But what they normally did is they wouldn't build a new synagogue on another piece of property. It would be like if we decided, well, let's build a bigger church. We'd tear this church down and then build another one. So we generally know exactly where that synagogue is that Paul was preaching. And it says, And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, because they had stayed behind to minister in Thessalonica and also in Athens, maybe on their way, Paul was occupied with the word. He was busy. He didn't wait. He wasn't, 
He wasn't going to hold back. He went after it. And he testified to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. Now, this is very strong. This has not been in most of the dialogue that we hear Paul at the synagogues. He's saying, no, 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 the Messiah that you're looking for is Jesus. And he's arguing with them about it. And when they opposed and reviled him, I love this part. He shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood is on your own heads. Now, if you, if you have heard before that when any Israeli would, would come back into, right, into Israel, Jerusalem, and, and then if they were in a country that was not theirs, they would dust their feet off so they wouldn't, you know, taint the, the, the land, the holy land. Or if you were at a house and, and it was disruptive and they didn't want to hear what you had to say, Jesus said, just, just dust your feet off and move on. Well, Paul takes his whole garment on and shakes it out and says, listen, I'm not responsible. I, I clean myself of this. I presented you the truth and now the blood is on your own heads. He says, I am innocent. For now I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus. Most would say Gaius because he's referenced later in scripture. Gaius Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. And his house was next door to the synagogue. I love this. Paul literally gets in a fight. They don't want him there. And then next door, he starts his own shop up right next door. It's like, you know when you go down the street and you see like First Baptist and across the street is Second Baptist? I'm like, ooh, that was a hard day. When they like, like, hey, guess what? We're moving across the street. He literally is right next door. So we have an idea of where Paul was originally preaching and where the first Christian church in Corinth was because we know where the synagogue was. Put this picture up. This is, this is generally what a home, uh, go back, a home in uh, Rome looked like because this was in a Roman city. They built this city. This is a Roman villa. And so this is probably what Titius Justice's house looks like. And in the front part there, smaller section, was this courtyard. And that's where you came in, and, and that's where business was done. That's where people met. Back part was the house. So most likely, we think that it was in the front part is where the meetings were taking place. And so it's right outside, right next to the synagogue, and they start meeting. And this is, makes me think a little bit why he's so conscious about how the church behaves, especially to the public. Because in Corinthians, he deals with that a lot. Remember when they had this problem of speaking in tongues and everybody's speaking in tongues and, and, and it's getting a little wild and out of control and some of the things that they're misusing the gifts, right? And they're right next door to the synagogue and they're right there in that courtyard. People can walk by and be like, what's going on in there? No, thank you. Right? So he writes in 1 Corinthians 14, 23, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are all of your minds? He's very conscious that the, to the outside world, the church has to be orderly because God is a God of order, not chaos. This makes a lot of sense, right, when you see it like that. And so you see, okay, Paul is dealing with things with this church. But he plants the church right next door. I love it. But here's one of the best parts. So he has the divine appointment of Gaius, right? Titius Justice, who's a, a high official we find out later. And then 
you have this, you have Priscilla and Aquila who become lifelong companions of Paul. And then you have this next person, Crispus. I don't know about that name, Crispus. It's actually not a great name, even in ancient world. It means curly, okay? I don't think he, he wants to be called curly, but his name is Crispus. The ruler of the synagogue. Now, this has never happened in Paul's ministry. The ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Oh, my gosh. He goes into a place that seems impossible. And he is, he, he is preaching. He gets these lifelong supporting friends. And he gets this backer of the entire church and then he gets the ruler of the synagogue and to come next door and be a part of the church listen when you're in a hard time you can't discount that God is making divine appointments on your behalf in some way you must always be open uh, here's a reflection I wrote down maybe we can kind of take ourselves which is Paul experienced a divine appointment in the market while he was working you could be at your job, and you're just working, and next thing you know, someone next to you is, in the, is doing life in the same way you are, and they're maybe a believer, maybe not, but you're, you're connecting away, and God's brought someone in your path. Don't close off those opportunities. And then, he, then the synagogue, he gives them a lifelong support and friends, and also the ruler of the synagogue, which gives them a tremendous amount of influence within the city, in this very corrupt city. Here's my challenge to you on that. Is that you got to pray, you got to trust to be open to divine appointments. You got to pray for them. Paul was no doubt asking for them, God, what am I going to do? I need help for those divine appointments because God is constantly orchestrating all around you, He is constantly at motion in a movement all around you. You must pray and you must open your eyes to see Him. The second amazing thing that happens that gives Paul a feeling that he is not alone is one that God literally tells him, you are not alone. Paul has been through it all. Paul is probably tired, but then there's always but God. He goes in one city, he's beaten up and chased out. He goes to another, he's stoned almost to death. He goes to another, <laughs> he goes to another. He's on the run from city to city to city, laughed at, mocked at. Imagine by the time he gets to Corinth, he's just like, hey, oof. Wow, I think this is why God comes to him now. He's been giving these amazing people around him, but he's in a city that probably is maybe over his head and he's never been to anything like this. And it says, As the Lord, uh, 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 sorry, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, this is Jesus, don't be afraid, go back on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. That's good. He needed to hear that. I have many who are going to be with you. Don't be afraid. And he says, and he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. He stayed here a year and a half. He stayed in Ephesus for three years. These are the longest stays that he had. The cities needed a lot of work, and the people did. And so God, he needed to know he could continue to do the work of changing lives. But he was afraid. 
I think when I read that passage, I thought, what was Paul going through? And I think I have an idea of what he was going through. But we have to be careful that we don't island ourselves when we get in that place. Right? Or lose faith that God is at work all around us. We can't. We have to be careful not to do that. It's a temptation to do it because when you're afraid, we tend to withdraw. But God is saying, don't withdraw, Paul. Continue to go. Don't island yourself. Don't worry. I've got more people than you realize. This kind of reminds me of a passage that's in 1 Kings 19. And Paul actually quotes it in Romans. And so I'll read it from Paul's uh, quote. Romans 11.3. Lord is speaking in this moment of this prophet who's afraid and no one else is there, Elijah. And he's like, there is no one else around me. <laughs> I'm surrounded by essentially devil worshipers. And I'm the only one left. And it says, Lord, I have killed your prophets. It says they have, sorry, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. Paul is teaching the people in Rome about this. They have, they seek my life. But what God, uh, sorry, but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men. And they have not bowed their knee to Baal worship. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. As Elijah needed that encouragement, no doubt Paul needed that encouragement, and no doubt you need that encouragement. Sometimes when you feel like you're the only one, sometimes we feel like we're not, we don't have anybody else with us. God is going to have to remind you, hopefully through these scriptures, that you're not alone. He has a remnant. And there are those that, why you're not alone is because there are those waiting for you who God has been working on that are waiting for you to deliver the gospel so they are not alone. I would do a study if I were you of the, all that I am with you in scripture. And it will very much bless you. C.S. Lewis said this. The great thing to remember is that though our feelings come and go, God's love for us does not. Your feelings will come and go. You will be up and down. Paul maybe might have been down here. But God's love will never go. I think waiting on, uh, or ultimately that, we have to realize that he is always going to be with us. The last thing is this, and we'll move on in a little bit to communion, is God's perfect timing. He shows them, not only are you alone, not only have I brought divine appointments to you, but my timing is, oh, oh, so good. Have you ever tried to do something in your own time, but then you wait for God's timing, and it's like way, 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 way better? Because he's like God and you're not. <laughs> Waiting on the Lord's timing, it's hard, but it's never disappointing. Verse 12, when Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Now, this is a very interesting name. And it's very, very important. And you'll see God's timing here. Gallia was somebody who was of great importance. And everyone was waiting for him to come. And they thought maybe we could get Paul up on charges and get rid of this Christian issue. 
And so Gallio is this person, I, I mean, if you look at, into his life, he's the son of a senator in Rome, a very big deal. He is one of the elite of elite of Rome, and, and he is a highly respected judge. He's the brother of Seneca, okay? Like this guy is from a famous family. His father was famous. He was famous. And all of Rome spoke very highly of him, especially his brother Seneca. And so he would say that my brother is probably the most kind person you will ever meet, who's the most fairest person you ever meet. He's the epitome of a Roman citizen. He is, he is uh, philosophical in all of his approaches, but he's as humble as the average man. So <laughs> they didn't realize who they had here and how much weight his words were. But his ability to judge fairly is what he was known for. And he was only serving one year in this position, so the timing is perfect. He judged from what's called a bema seat, and it's this thing right here. And that's actually right exactly where Paul stood in front of. The bema seat was right there. See that post right there? If Paul was guilty, they would have strapped him to it, stripped him naked, and whipped him. And so he's faced right there, sat right in front of Gallio. And this is where the judgment happened. Verse 13, they go and say, this man is persuading people to worship God, uh, worshiping God contrary to the law. They're very vague. They're not saying to the Jewish law. They're saying uh, to, to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, first time ever, <laughs> he literally was cut off. Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing, or vicious crime, oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of question about words and names of your own law, now this is important, because Judaism was, was accepted into Rome as an acceptable religion because of its ancient history. And so it could be practiced and not put out of the city. And what they were trying to do is say Christianity is not a part of this. This is separate. It's not a sanctioned religion. And he then says, no, 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 this is all the same. And this is important. And he goes on to say, and see to it yourselves, right? Take care of it yourselves. And here's what changed history. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them out of the tribunal. That one ruling, we don't realize this, that one ruling protected the church in all of Rome for a good 10 to 12 years until things shifted in the emperor. That one ruling by this one very prominent judge who was highly respected sent echoes about the acceptance of Christianity as a valid religion. And this is why I think God's timing is so good. And this is why Paul was told, don't worry, I'm with you. I got more people in the city than you think. We have to realize that sometimes our timing isn't, isn't God's timing, but when his timing happens, it's perfect. And it protected the city, and it protected Paul, and it protected this movement, because they could have ended the movement right then. It says, and they all see Sosthenes, all the people in the crowd, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Solstenes is probably Crispus. Most people probably believe that this is when Paul gives people different names. Crispus meaning curly. Solstenes meaning leader in strength. Paul references him later 
in, in, in Acts, and we see him in Corinthians. Actually, he puts Solstenes on the letter of 1 Corinthians, which probably means Solstenes was this highly influential leader, which he would have been when he converted. These are his people. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave with his brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila to Sankarii, and he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. We don't really know what vow he was under, but we do know this, that I believe, I believe this, and I, I've read many that do, is that Paul, from the moment he was given that promise, he vowed that he would keep this vow until he left. And when he was at the port to leave, he shaved his head. And the vows were very important, but I kind of like it because it was a reminder every day his hair got longer that he's going to believe in that promise God had. Every single day he was going to trust, and to complete his vow was that he was going to trust God the whole time, that he was going to be okay, and God was not going to leave him or forsake him. It was this tangible thing that he had. I kind of like that. His trust reminded him of the commitment to trust. I'll give you just a reflection, and we'll go into community or communion. A reflection here I think is good just to ask ourselves is in trying times, strange places, and exhausted Exhaustion has set in. Remember how God showed up for Paul. And that he is, loves you the same. That promise he made is the same promise he makes you. Maybe we do need a reminder like Paul's vow to remind ourselves of every day that God has made this promise to us. Maybe something, I don't mean grow your hair out. Even though I think that, you know, Royland might not work out so good for you and I to grow our hair out, but I think there's things in our life that we, we can do to remind ourselves that God has made a promise and that we're going to trust in that promise. Here's a challenge. Push yourself beyond your comfort zone. We, we have a couple here that moved from Michigan, and they're, they're planting a church. And... Um, I, I, I praise them so much because they, I feel like you guys are a little bit like Paul and Priscilla and Aquila. You've showed up here. You don't know anybody, and you're just starting from scratch, right? And they're hoping to plant. You don't even know what city you're going to plant in, right? They're just feeling it out. I mean, don't plant across the street, though, like Paul did there. That'd be weird. No, but you can. We'd love you the same. But the, but the thing is, is I respect what you're doing because you're showing up, and you're going, God, what do you have for me? And you're not from here. I mean, you're from Michigan, one of the most beautiful places in the land. And so naturally, I have to support you. But push, you're pushing yourself beyond your comfort zone. You, you, we have to push ourselves beyond our comfort zone to experience, I think, what the gospel can really do. I say we look to see God's divine appointments, his presence, and his trust in perfect timing. Let's bow our heads. In Corinthians, Chab was telling me this today, and, and I really appreciated it, is that this passage in Corinthians that we'll quote for communion was actually the first time it had ever been penned. Because Corinthians was written before the Gospels. And so these people are hearing the story of the Last Supper, the Corinthians are. But Paul's writing to the Corinthians because they're dealing with an issue because there was a class inequality happening in the Corinthian church. Some people who were very rich were not very kind to the people who were very poor. 
Some people who had high status weren't kind to those who didn't have high status. And Paul uses the story of communion to be the great equalizer that actually all of you are poor and spiritually barren without Jesus. And he's dealing with dissension in the church. He's dealing with issues in the church. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 13, For in one spirit we are all baptized into the body. Jews and Greeks and slaves are free. And we are all made to drink of one spirit. You're all the same. When you leave this place, maybe we, we will experience life where we feel like we're in a different context. But in this place, in this moment, Paul is telling them, when you are together, this is a moment you may never act as if you are any different than anyone else here because we all need to come to the table. The most important things Paul addressed in Corinthians, and you'll see the theme, is that the, it, the, 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 the solution to all your problems within the church is a lack of love. And that causes disunity. And that causes issues. That causes sinful living. That causes distraction. It's the lack of love. Love for who Christ is. Love for one another. Love for the person you're engaging in sinful behavior with. Lack of love with each other and disunity in the church and judging each other. It's the lack of love. Paul says it over and over and over. And actually in verse 16, chapter 16, one of the last things he says is that you must go and love one another. That's what communion is about. That's what Paul wanted to teach that church who was so upside down. I, I, I don't really know where you're at right now in your life, but if you are in a place like Paul where maybe you're a little overwhelmed, maybe today, and you take communion, you go back to your seat, and you reflect for a moment during that song, and you just say, God, I'm going to trust you again. I'm going, to, I'm going to make a vow that I'm going to trust your words. I'm not alone. There are people all around me, and I don't even know it. You are at work. I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to do everything I do out of love. Because I need what you have, God, no matter how great I think I am or how low I think I am. We all need you. So let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the Corinthian church and God and, and, and your work through Paul and shaping and uh, guiding and directing that church. And God, ultimately your move in a church that seemed impossible and too dark in a culture. But God, you grew a bright light in the city. And God, I just thank you that you are doing the same through us. No matter how dark or how hard or how difficult culture seems or how overwhelming it is or how frustrating things are going on in our life, that, God, you are burning a bright light in this church and help us be the light into the world around us. And today, as we take communion, it's a reminder of everything you did, Christ, on the cross for life, salvation, resurrection, redemption, and to be ambassadors for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me and sing this last song? Feel free anytime to come up and get communion.